Previously on Survivor. So begins host Jeff Probst to introduce another episode of the long-running pseudo-reality game show called Survivor. In the show, a group of people are put onto an island where they compete in various challenges, and at the end of each episode, someone is voted off the island. The winner is the last one standing who wins the votes of the other players. Over the seasons, what started off as a moral crisis of whether or not to deceive and lie to other players has become a commonplace game strategy. A player thinks that everyone is going to vote for a certain person to be voted out, but then they find out they've been blindsided and they have just been voted out of the game. Many of us probably feel like we are regularly playing a game of Survivor, and our island is perhaps our school or our workplace, or our extended family, or even our community. We are trying to win the approval of others, trying to win today's challenge for a reward or immunity to keep from getting voted off the island. Well, in our passage this morning, the first 16 verses of the last chapter of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is shipwrecked along with 275 other sailors, soldiers, travelers, uh, merchants, and they find themselves on the island of Malta, having survived a 14-day sovereign storm that blew them wildly off course into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. What will happen next? Stay tuned for today's episode of Survivor Malta. Instead of a commercial break, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Indeed, our God, as we have worshipped you in song, we worship now in study delighting in the opportunity to have your word read and proclaimed, that we might hear it for what it is, your word. We pray that you would send your spirit to come and bear witness to the reading and proclamation of your word. And so as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. The last chapter of the book of Acts, chapter 28, the first 16 verses, listen to God's word. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. 
After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Batoli. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius, the three taverns, to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Our passage begins with this discovery that the island where they've landed is Malta, a couple hundred miles from where they expected to be, but just 50 miles off the southern tip of Italy. They are much closer to Rome than they ever expected. Rome, Italy is, of course, their final destination, but this is certainly not how they expected to get there. And doesn't the Lord often do it just this way? The Lord gets us where we intend to go, but in a very different way than we plan to get there. God continually reminds us that he is sovereign and we are not, and that we really are dependent on him. And he also shows us that he is planning things for the journey as well as for the destination. The island of Malta today is an independent European country in the Mediterranean Sea between southern Europe and northern Africa. It is one of the smallest and most densely populated countries in the world with 450,000 people living on just 122 square miles of island. It's also a popular tourist destination with some of the oldest freestanding structures in the world. Oh, and 90% of the country professes faith in Christ. Various histories record that the shipwreck happened on St. Paul's Bay of Malta and that Publius, the chief official, as he is called in verse 7, became the first bishop of Malta. Paul did not randomly get shipwrecked on Malta. The sovereign God, by a sovereign storm, brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to a small island, an entire nation that has historically been a strategic naval base for various peoples who have ruled over the island. Twelve different national powers have ruled over the island, but still to this day, 90% of the island professes faith in Christ. Now, to be fair, 88% Uh, calls themselves Roman Catholic, and certainly a profession of faith does not always mean faith. But the Maltese clearly connect the conversion of the country to the three-month ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so verse 2 is particularly interesting. What we read is, the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. The word that is translated islanders or natives is where we get our word barbarians. Non-Greek speaking people were called barbarians because they were assumed to be uncivilized, rude, and brutal. The New Testament does not use the word barbarians in this way, but simply uses it as the word that was was used to refer to non-Greek speaking people. It's one of those cases where a word that used to have a negative connotation, became the ordinary word that is used. 
and perpetuated the negative, even if inadvertently. And either needs to be dramatically redefined or changed. It is like so many words that have been used to refer to ethnic minorities, where the word itself is rude, whether a person means it to be or not. And what verse 2 shows us is that the barbarians were not barbaric at all. In fact, they displayed unusual kindness, literally not an ordinary kind of kindness. They went over and above. If people came crashing on your shore, shipwrecked and arrived at your doorstep, certainly ordinary kindness would bring food and water, shelter, blankets, basic medical treatment. But what happened here was extraordinary kindness. What verse 2 says is they welcomed us all. And the word that's there literally means they received us as one of their own. We won't just care for you as shipwreck survivors, some other people from some other place. We will care for you as though you are part of our family, part of our community. It's a beautiful picture of how we are to extend and offer unusual kindness to others regardless of how it is they come to us, that they might say they received us as one of their own. We don't love those people out there. We love our neighbor as ourselves. And who is our neighbor? Not just those people that we have a natural relationship with, but especially those who are outside of our ordinary circle, souls whom God is providentially pleased to bring to us. And so the word that's translated kindness is where we get our word philanthropy, which is a word that literally means love for our fellow man. We tend to think of philanthropy as donating money to a charitable cause. But philoanthropos, philanthropy, means love for our fellow man. Earlier in the service, we read Psalm 15 in that description of kingdom citizens, their character, speech, conduct, values, integrity, and stewardship. Psalm 15 says kingdom citizens love their fellow man with extraordinary kindness. They do what is righteous, speaks the truth from his heart, casts no slur on his fellow man, honors those who fear the Lord, keeps his oath even when it hurts, lends his money without interest. Those are acts of unusual kindness from a heart that is transformed by the God who does abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the pagans do the same? We are to do unusual kindness, extraordinary kindness, over and above kindness. Love for our fellow man that welcomes them as one of us. Now, certainly wisdom is needed in this. 
The Sermon on the Mount is not about addressing situations where giving might actually be enabling. It's not uh, perpetuating entitlement mentalities. Unusual kindness from kingdom citizens needs divine wisdom to know particularly how best to love our fellow man in a particular situation. And that is another sermon on another passage. The point that's in Acts 28 is that even the barbarians of Malta show unusual kindness. And they do so because the Lord is at work. The Apostle Paul is bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to a people who are being readied to receive it by God himself. It's a wonderful picture of evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Paul's gospel ministry is going to take hold because the Lord makes it so. Evangelism and the sovereignty of God go hand in hand. Our evangelism is successful because the sovereignty of God. Those whom God has determined to save, he is going to save. We simply have the great delight and pleasure and privilege to go and share the gospel and then to watch people receive it because the Lord is already at work. Now, in this passage, Luke gives no account of Paul actually sharing the gospel with the Maltese people, but we know that he did. Instead, Luke gives accounts of the authenticating miracles that accompanied the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. The authenticating miracles are those miracles that we saw Jesus perform and the apostles, healing, driving out demons, those uh, unusual things that were extraordinary, that were part of the apostolic age in order to uh, give authentication to the power of the message and the power of the God that they were presenting. So that as Jesus and the apostles were presenting the gospel, this good news, this new message that truly was a divine message from God himself, it was accompanied by authenticating miracles that those who were receiving it would see and experience the miracles and realize that the message that was coming was indeed a message unlike anything they'd ever heard before. The authenticating miracles ceased at the end of the apostolic age, but were effective in doing exactly what it was they intended to do, to see that the gospel burst out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria out to the ends of the earth. We see them take place here first with Paul bitten by a venomous viper, the Maltese people knowing that it was a particularly venomous snake. They expected Paul to die from the snake bite. At first, they thought Paul must be a murderer that was able to, uh, uh, to escape the ship and drowning, but could not escape justice. They had a view similar to what today is called karma. As Christians, we say that we do not believe in such thing as karma or fate, but too often we can be judgmental in this way. Assuming that someone is suffering because they must have done something wrong. They're suffering. They're in their current predicament because of what they've done. We may even think of this about ourselves. That if I am suffering, it must be something that I've done. And what can I do to appease God to make the suffering go away? God has already been appeased. God's wrath has been fully satisfied by Jesus Christ. We do not suffer because of something that we have done, and we are not blessed because of something that we are done. The imputed righteousness of Christ says that Christ has taken the due punishment for our sins and has given us the credit for his perfect righteousness. We are blessed because of the work of Jesus Christ, and we are not punished because Jesus Christ was punished in our place. 
how often is it that we actually see the righteous suffer and the wicked flourish? Our brothers and sisters in Christ in Sutherland Springs, Texas, are not suffering because of something that they did wrong. Our hope, then, in suffering is in the sovereignty of God, a sovereign God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The sovereign God may sometimes use suffering as a means of correcting things in our lives. He may use it even in a constructive way, building us up somehow. In his letter to the Romans, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. In the suffering of Jesus Christ for our sake, we change the way that we understand suffering. And so, what we read is that when Paul was unaffected by the snake bite, the people changed their minds, and they thought that he was a god. The word that's translated changed their minds is where we get our word metabolic or metabolism. Metabolism is the conversion of fuel to energy. It describes the transformation from one chemical to another chemical. The people of Malta undergo a metabolism, a conversion, a transformation of the mind, heart, and soul. We read about authenticating miracles, but it is understood that Paul is sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh who rose from the dead. Place your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and you are placing your faith in the God of the universe. The transformation, of course, doesn't happen all at once. At first, the people think that Paul is a god, but they will come to understand that Paul is not a god. Paul simply serves the one true God. The account of the authenticating miracles continues at the household of Publius, the chief official of the island. And what we read is that the chief welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. That is absolutely remarkable. Refugees who are shipwrecked are not simply put in a Red Cross holding center. They are welcomed, received, shown every possible courtesy and hospitality as though they are honored guests. Oh, that the Christian church would show the same love for our fellow man as the barbarians of Malta showed to the shipwrecked. And so this episode of Survivor Malta is actually a real-life demonstration of God's redemptive activity among the most unlikely gathering of people. Publius and the people of Malta minister to Paul. And then Paul ministers to Publius and the people of Malta. The Lord uses Paul to heal first the father of the chief. And then the Lord uses Paul to heal all who are sick on the island. And it might be a stretch to say that everyone on the island, all the natives as well as all the shipwrecked, all truly receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as they hear the gospel and see the power of Christ, the authenticating miracles. So maybe not everyone, but there is no doubt that the gospel's impact is comprehensive. The people of Malta honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. A rather extraordinary conclusion to survive Malta. 
But the account of God's sovereign activity doesn't end there. In verses 11 through 17, we read that after the rough ride, it is smooth sailing the rest of the way. And an incredible understatement in verse 14, and so we came to Rome. (laughs) After all that, and so we came to Rome. The Lord gets Paul to Rome as promised, but not quite how Paul planned to get there or how he would have wanted to get there, but exactly how it is that God willed him to get there. It had long been Paul's desire to go to Rome. He had said as much five years earlier when he was in Ephesus. But it was not just Paul's desire. God himself, back in chapter 23, had said that Paul would testify in Rome. And that message was reinforced on the ship during the storm. Now, going to Rome as a prisoner, as a shipwrecked survivor, it's a tough way to go but it is what God designed. Paul did not know what kind of reception he might receive in Rome. Would he be immediately tried and martyred? What did the people there already presume and prejudge? Would he be rejected in Rome as he had been rejected in so many other places? But as it turned out, Paul thanked God and was encouraged as people came from as far as 30 and 40 miles outside of Rome from places like the three taverns in the form of Appius. Paul did not know what kind of reception he would would receive, but Paul did know that if the gospel of Jesus Christ was to become a world religion, he would need to go to Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire for nearly a thousand years. It's interesting that Paul's procedure so often focused on taking the gospel into large metropolitan cities. We today tend to think that the gospel can't possibly be received in big cities. But that is exactly what Paul did and what we are still called to do today. The gospel is to be taken into big cities and to small country towns. There is no place where we need to fear taking the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that the sovereign God has elect people from every nation tribe and tongue, and so we can take the gospel anywhere and everywhere, and by the power of God, it will be received anywhere and everywhere. It's the promise that is from the beginning of Acts. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there's a sense in which all of the book of Acts is leading to this conclusion, that the gospel will go all the way to Rome. If the gospel goes to the capital city of the Roman Empire, then it has gone out into all the world. The Roman Empire itself has been reached with the gospel. Now today we recognize that the gospel has gone even further to the ends of the earth. In fact, we sit here in the United States to the one end, the furthest end west of Jerusalem. And as we heard last week from Linda Carner, The gospel has gone all the way to the other end, east of Jerusalem. The gospel has gone to the ends of the earth because God keeps all his promises. Not always, perhaps hardly ever, perhaps never in the way we expect, but God keeps all his promises. So what is your island? What is the island where you have been shipwrecked? Where is the island where God's storm has taken you? You are not there because God has ignored you. 
God has purposed you to be there? Who has God placed in your path to whom you could show unusual kindness? What unlikely people has God brought to you to whom you could receive them as one of your own? God has purposed you to be there in order to love your fellow man. And where is your Rome? What is God's call on your life? What is your ministry destination as part of God's kingdom building work? You may not be there yet, but you will be. God has purposed you to be there. God has purposed the destination as well as the journey. And may that truth set us free. Amen.